Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Adam M. Sowards. Adam's a professor of history at University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho. He's a very well-known environmental historian and today we're going to be talking to Adam about his new book. It's called An Open Pit Visible to the Moon, The Wilderness Act and the Fight to Protect Miners Ridge and the Public Interest just published by University of Oklahoma Press earlier this year, 2020. Adam, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Crawford. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's really great to have you. Before we start talking about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your position in Moscow, for example? Sure. Um, I'm a professor of history, like you said. I also work in some interdisciplinary programs with um, environmental science, water resources, that sort of thing, because I always believe it's important to have a long-term time scale involved in those sorts of projects. Um, I've been at the University of Idaho since 2003 and have pretty much lived my entire life in the Pacific Northwest. So um, this work that I have just completed in this book – allowed me to research in my home region, which was a lot of fun. That's great. Now, I mentioned at the start of the program, you're a very well-established environmental historian, previous work on uh, William O. Douglas, um, uh, an edited collection uh, on on Idaho and and its place. Um, How does this book, An Open Pit Visible to the Moon, fit into that bigger project? What's the background to this book? Yeah, thanks for asking that. When I look back over my career, it seems like most of the things that I have done have either focused on people or discrete places. And I'm always interested in how people have come to understand places um, and have worked on their behalf, either as conservationists or activists, or whether it's scientists and land managers trying to figure out how the place was put together and how it might best be managed. Um, And so this project is very much combining those things because it's about a very discrete place, one ridge in one wilderness area in one national forest in Washington state. But it's also connected to a variety of networks that cross the globe and lots of ideas that go back in time um, that influence what happens there and and laws that go back uh, for a century. And so, um, and, and many people come to this particular fight to uh, either in favor of putting this open pit mine in this wilderness area or to stop that from happening um, and learning about those different people, some of them quite famous, like Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas, who I've written about before, or Secretary of Agriculture Orville Freeman, and others who are really not known at all, uh, college students, uh, local doctors, um, that, that sort of thing. It was a fun way to put those two things together, the people and the places. And I'm always reminded of um, one of my favorite passages from Terry Tempest Williams, who is 
one of our best writers about the environment and an activist. She wrote, the integrity of our public lands depends on the integrity of our public process within the open space of democracy. And when I came across that passage a couple years ago, I realized that's kind of what I've been doing most of my career is understanding this public land system and how it does or does not have integrity um, and people working to try to create that. And I think that this book especially uh, focuses on this moment right after the Wilderness Act was passed, a really significant uh, law in our public lands history, and shows how American citizens came together to enact that integrity that Terry Tempest Williams talks about. So the Wilderness Act was passed 1964, I think, wasn't it? And a, a new focus, I mean, this is such a beautifully composed micro-history in a way that reaches out such hugely important themes. But just in a, in a couple of sentences, Adam, tell us, what's the story that you tell in this book? Well, the story in a couple sentences is tough, um, but it's essentially how Kennecott Copper Corporation announced that it was going to put an open pit mine in the middle of Glacier Peak Wilderness Area, which it was allowed to do according to the Wilderness Act, and how politicians, activists, citizens try to stop them. Well, I think every side in this battle saw this as a test to see how strong the Wilderness Act was going to be or what limitations there might be to it. So it's really a defining battle for how the Wilderness Act would be implemented on the ground after it passed in 1964. So it's a key story, isn't it? It's a key moment in the way that legislation is understood. And it's, it's, a, it's a beautifully composed discussion and description analysis of um, the way in which that legislation worked, the ambiguities it created, and the opportunities it allowed for people to, to, to resist the corporation's ambition. Tell us about the structure of the book, Adam. You, you mentioned earlier on you're interested in people and places. That really comes through, doesn't it, in the contents page? I'm, I'm glad you think so. <laughs> yeah, so I have a three-part structure where, I mean, the first part is called The Bedrock, and I think this was maybe the last thing I wrote um, I was most interested in the political campaign and activist campaign against Kennecott, but to understand how all of these people and all these institutions and laws were at play, I had to figure out how this landscape was created. Um, and so the bedrock section tries to set all of that up and how we get this wilderness in the first place. And the real heart of the book is the second part, which I call Challenges. And it just goes through a series of chapters, very small case studies. Most of the chapters are quite short, which I hope um, moves the book along at a good little clip. And it shows different campaigns, different strategies um, that, that people who loved this place and wanted to make sure that it was protected without um, that big open pit copper mine, um, what they did to try to um, use the law or use citizen activism to stop it. And then the final part of the book, Resolution, is how it all ends and why it ends the way it does, including the stories that are told during and afterwards to interrogate what happened and um, how the public understood what this campaign was all supposed to mean. And I sort of, I guess, I get wrapped up in that too as I try to explain how my narrative tries to explain what this is all about in the search for the public interest in, in these wilderness lands. Mm. Now, we'll, we'll begin to, to, to unpack some of the big themes that you, that you 
um, present to us in this book, uh, Adam. But before we do, can you tell us where the story starts? You mentioned earlier on William O. Douglas and the Wilderness Act, 1964. What's the kind of background to the corporation's ambition in this particular territory? Yeah, that's a a hard question to answer. It has so many beginnings. Um, At some level, it begins in 1872 when Congress passes the the mining law that that still largely governs what we do on public lands and gives mining people who mine so much power to to to, to practice mining. Um, it also can start with the rise of the Forest Service and the larger conservation movement at the turn of the 20th century. Kennecott itself acquires the mining claims at Miners Ridge in the mid 1950s, um, and that's a real catalyst. Although they don't do a whole lot right then. They do a little bit of exploration. In the 1960s, um, in 1964, the Wilderness Act passes, and that's really the linchpin that makes this story, I think, important. Um, And within two years of its passage, Kennecott announces publicly that they plan to uh, open up this mine that they had long known there was potential there for, for copper. They use the argument that the United States needs the copper for its war effort in Vietnam and with larger global economic um, – there's an imbalance of payments that, that American economists and politicians are quite concerned with. So Kennecott uses uh, these calls from government, said, we're just doing our patriotic duty. We're trying to help with the war effort. We're trying to help get the balance of payments sorted out. Um, so these things start to percolate right in the middle of the 1960s. Um, and and activists, just like Kennecott, had long known their copper there. I mean, the place is called Miner's Ridge for a reason. And they were ready, and they'd been paying close attention, and they kept hearing things might come. And uh, Kennecott finally makes this announcement just before Christmas in 1966. And then there's an intense period through all of 1967, where just about every month there was some big new moment um, in this campaign. And then it trickles on um, in 68, 69, 70, and doesn't get formally and forever fixed until 2010. Now, was what the corporation was trying to do legal under the terms of the Wilderness Act? Absolutely. And that was the the real challenge. When Congress was looking to pass the Wilderness Act, um, there were many, many opponents, and some of the most powerful opponents were um, miners or politicians who supported mining in their communities. And one of the compromises that got written into the Wilderness Act was allow claims that had paying minerals to be mined forever. And for 20 years, companies could look for new claims and make claims within wilderness areas. So this was an existing claim uh, when the Wilderness Act went into effect. And so absolutely, Kennecott had every right to do that. No one could stop them from doing that, although there were regulations or restrictions that the Forest Service expected to be able to impose um, for the manner of how the mining would happen. This was what a lot of the discussion happened early on between Kennecott and the Forest Service. And we don't really know what 
the um, Forest Service would have actually imposed because Kennecott never formally goes forward. Um, but there's lots of speculation about uh, whether there could be a road or what kind of mine would operate, whether it was going to be open pit or whether the Forest Service was re- going to require them to, to go underground and those sorts of things. So that's where lots of the debate early on was. But f- from Kennecott's perspective, it was absolutely legal. And for them, that was one of the most important things that they needed to do was to show that they had the right, that the Wilderness Act did not take away that right, and they were going to show everyone, and all mining companies are really interested in this, that yes, in fact, we're able to do this. Now, we're talking about a mine, Adam, but it was a massive mine, wasn't it? The, the title of the book gives a hint at that, an open pit visible from the moon. Um, how did Forest Service employees feel about the project if the organization itself couldn't formally respond? How did individual employees respond? That's a, a, an interesting question, and it's hard to answer because they don't respond in a uniform way. There are some foresters who are personally very much against it and think it's a terrible idea. And I think the local, the, the forest supervisor of the local Mount Baker National Forest at the time, his name was Harold Criswell, he didn't think it was a great idea. He thought it was going to end up in court. Um, he thought that he would put in as strong of regulations as possible to try to deter Kennecott Copper from, from doing it. His superiors said, you don't have the right to do that, and we really can't say the things that you're saying. Um, and Kennecott would weigh in with to even higher bosses and say, hey, what's going on? Are they going to stop us or not? And um, I think the formal line from the Forest Service is that the Wilderness Act allows this. We cannot cannot regulate it out of existence. So you've got a combination of people who are just trying to follow the law and other people are going to try to make it as complicated for Kennecott as possible. And one of the organizations that often sees it or saw itself in this period at least as a guardian of these public spaces was the Sierra Club. How did they respond to this? Sierra Club is important in a lot of ways, um, and and they play a leading role here in in trying to stop Kennecott. They also have local organizations that are really important, especially the North Cascades Conservation Council, are also often called N3C, and they really work together in all of this. And the Sierra Club had long had an interest in the North Cascades. They had made a film about the region. Um, that featured um, David Brower, who who ran the organization at the time, him and his children, and Howard Zonizer, who ran the Wilderness Society, and hit their children. So it was it had a longstanding history of trying to protect wilderness in the larger North Cascades region. Um, the Sierra Club appointed a Northwest representative and went through a couple of them during this campaign. Brock Evans ended up being probably the most important of them and played a, a central role in this story. Um, right away, uh, the head of the Sierra Club wants to meet with Kennecott, and they have, I, I term it a summit in San Francisco. And this is barely, I think, right around a month after Kennecott made its announcements. And there were a number of high-ranking officials from Kennecott and high-ranking officials in both the Northwest and and. Uh, organizations and Sierra Club, and they meet in San Francisco and try to hash this out. 
And it's, I think, mostly a, a meeting where each side sort of stakes out their claims and makes them clear and public to everyone. Um, they all try to be respectful, but um, from the side, from the Sierra Club side, they they leave the meeting worried that the mine is going to happen and um, with a lot of um, determination to stop it. And you emphasize at the end of the chapter where you speak about the summit that the Sierra Club and, and others in that side of the argument decided to adopt a moral approach, not a legal one. What, what do you mean when you make that claim? Well, the law was not on conservationists' side. Uh, the law was on the mining company's side. And so I think there's a longstanding tradition in American environmental activism that when the law is not on your side, you make a moral claim that the law is wrong. And so one of the ways they do this is they frame it largely um, as a question of greed. And you see this come up again and again and again in the campaigns that, that follow, that this is just a greedy corporation who is going to desecrate this beautiful one-of-a-kind sort of place and that, that that is just simply the wrong thing to do. Um, so there's this, I mean, if you go back to the founder of the Sierra Club, John Muir made very similar arguments, um, not quite a century before, but, but pretty close to a century before, uh, putting things in terms of right and wrong, not legal or not, not legal or not legal or illegal. And the other thing that is, I think, important for us to keep in mind today, today, if this were to happen, we would use the Endangered Species Act or the National Environmental Policy Act, and those laws were not yet at stake. And so there were many fewer legal avenues to protest at this time when it was happening. And then lastly, today also we use a lot of scientific evidence, and that was not the primary language, if you will, to, that was used at this time to um, frame environmental debates. It, it becomes so soon, but it has not quite gotten there. And so you're left with, in many ways, a moral argument. And I, I think that it ends up serving them well, and it serves well, certainly the stories that are told about um, what's happening in the North Cascades and what should happen in the North Cascades. It's really interesting that that chapter ends with this theme of legal powerlessness, but moral power. Because in mm -hmm. some ways that, that feeds into your discussion of Orville Freeman, the Secretary of Agriculture, who seems to adopt a strategy of advertising as powerlessness. <laughs> right. So Orville Freeman um, goes to the Sierra Club Biennial Conference on Wilderness, which they've been holding for a long time. And it's this great opportunity um, to get him in the room with, with the Sierra Club and, and lots of other activists. And Orville Freeman is not known particularly for being a strong wilderness advocate. He's not known particularly for being especially articulate. And he gets up and he want, he sort of gives a, a typical banquet speech for a while about all the good things that the Forest Service is doing and or trying to do. But then he turns to the North Cascades and this particular threat from Kennecott Copper. And he just, he he speaks so beautifully, and it's just so uncharacteristic of anyone, I think, who's ever studied Orville Freeman, but it's just, it, he paints these beautiful poetic pictures of this, this area and how glorious it is. And he, I think what he's doing is essentially 
laying out that moral case again and letting everyone know I can't stop it. Even though the Forest Service is within the Department of Agriculture, I can't stop it because the Wilderness Act doesn't allow me to. And so what you have to do, he says to all of these people, is you have to organize and and get the public to tell Kennecott to stop. And this becomes one of the strategies um, adopted in various ways for, with others in this campaign is to let Kennecott know the public is going to be angry. And when your standing in public um, declines, your profitability will decline, and that's not going to be good for anyone. So this is the workaround since the uh, Wilderness Act allows them, Kennecott, to continue to do to pursue this plan. This theme of profitability is one that's taken up by Fred Danville, one of the great heroes of this book, um, <laughs> a shareholder activist. Was he a major shareholder? Uh, not at all. So it's it's Darville, Fred Darville. He was a doctor in a, in a local town, Mount Vernon, Washington. Um, he loved to go backpacking. And when... Kennecott made this announcement. Dr. Darville wrote to his local paper and said this is terrible and uh, encouraged everyone to get involved. And he wrote his local politicians. And then he bought three shares, just three shares of stock in Kennecott because he wanted to go to this next shareholder meeting and make a statement. And he did. And it's a, a, it's just one of my favorite stories uh, that I came across in all of this. He shows up, travels across the country, shows up at the shareholder meeting in New York City. And he he has he carries an oil painting with him of Image Lake, which is this iconic place in the in the in right near where this mine would be. It's maybe the most beautiful spot in the entire Cascade Range. And he says, "I have come here today to talk about wilderness and beauty." And I'm always struck by that line that it's probably not a line that's often used in um, copper corporations <laughs> shareholder meetings. And he talks about what a beautiful place it is and how terrible. It would be for this mine to go in and how it was going to be a black mark against Kennecott and they would lose money because the public would be so disgusted by this this act of essentially sacrilege. Um, and he gets lots of press coverage for, for doing this. He's not the only one in the 1960s who is doing such things. This is happening more and more commonly um, around issues related to uh, anti-war activism or civil rights activism. But he does it in this case um, because he's in favor of wilderness and wanting to protect his beloved North Cascades. And then we come back in the book to William O. Douglas, someone you've written about extensively uh, before. Right. What does he do? How does he intervene in this? Right. So Justice Douglas, and, and this is how I, I think, first came to understand this story that happened, this campaign in the North Cascades. He'd been involved in... Um, a number of Northwest wilderness campaigns at this point for, for longer than a decade. He's quite experienced and people know him. And as I understand it, some local student activists contacted him and said, hey, would you be willing to come and speak? And when he's able to do that, that was something that he often lent him his, his time to. And so he comes up um, to outside of a small town named, called Darrington, which is not very far from where I grew up, actually. And he goes out to a campground where there's between 100 and 200 young people. And he, after they mill around and sign some petitions and have a nice lunch and those sorts of things, they walk down the trail and he gives a speech about what they needed to do. And he sounds some of these same themes that we've heard from Orville Freeman, from 
from Fred Darvel, and he's, he says, and I think this is a remarkable thing for a Supreme Court justice to say, he says, just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right. And so he encourages those activists to go to the public and point out that we need to rouse the corporate conscience of Kennecott and get the public motivated against that corporation. Um, at, by this time, um, he'd been on the court for years and years and years, decades even, and this was not an unusual argument for him to make, although it's certainly more activist than than most of us expect our judges to be, our Supreme Court justices to be. So again, his he's he's much like Orville Freeman is 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 saying this is not a, there's not a legal way to stop this, and so we just have to rely on persuading people. Uh, to morally oppose this and see if we can and get anywhere that way. So it was students who brought William O. Douglas into the into the strategy. What else did students try to achieve? Well, students were, I think, on the ground and did a lot of the groundwork um, to maintain activist networks. They're also some of the people who know this area because they they're young and they're backpacking in it. But there's one student in particular who I highlight, and his name is Benjamin Shane, and he's not from the Northwest. He goes to school at Oberlin College, which is in Ohio. And between his junior and senior year, I believe it was, he wrote to Brock Evans, the Northwest representative for the Sierra Club, and said, I'm, I'm studying this. I'm aware of the, the issues about wilderness in the North Cascades, and I would really like to help. I don't need you to pay me is there anything I can do? And Brock Evans is, of course, come on out. And so he spends the summer out in the Northwest studying the issue really well. He goes and visits Justice Douglas um, to record some remarks to be used in a film that actually doesn't ever get made. Um, so Shane's just on the ground meeting these important people. He's writing to the founders of the Environmental Defense Fund, trying to figure out if there's a legal way to get around um, the Wilderness Act. But one of the most interesting things he does when he goes back to Oberlin is he creates a petition that he um, help has his professors help him get signed by nearly 400 scientists all around the country. And some of these scientists are really well known, such as Paul Ehrlich. And the sign the petition says we oppose this on all these grounds and 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 we should we shouldn't have this sort of mind. And not content to just get a petition signed, he thinks it's important for him to hand deliver it. And so he makes his way to New York City, into the Manhattan offices of Kennecott, and he meets with the president of the company, a vice president of the company, and the head of public relations. And I think they meet for about 45 minutes, which is a pretty remarkable thing to do to meet with just a college student. And so he presents this um, and says, you know, you're wrong doing this. And what comes out in the meeting from Ben Shane's perspective is that they tried really hard to suggest that we don't care about this publicity. We don't care about these protests. This doesn't really matter. But they let slip that they had, they had practiced this. They had rehearsed their presentation to him. And so when he reports back to Brock Evans and other conservationists in the Northwest, he says very clearly, they're obviously scared of this. This is obviously not going their way even though they seem to have all the power and seem to have the legal right, they spent this time to meet with him um, to consider his petition. But he did leave um, the meeting also 
um, with a strong sense that if they could profit from it, they were going to profit from it, that that was the bottom line. And so he keeps close eye on the price of copper um, and worries every time it goes up that that is the sign that Kennecott is going to move forward. And how important is the price of copper for determining the outcome of this attempt? That's a that's a good question, and um, I think that I end up concluding that it's a pretty important part of this. Um, the price of copper seems to be pretty volatile in this period. Maybe it's always volatile, and the ability for Kennecott to recoup its its investment um, is always sort of hanging in the balance. And as it moves up and down. You see Kennecott saying, you're definitely going ahead or we're going to wait and see. So I think that becomes actually a really important part of the final determination. And um, not to diminish the activism and, and all the roles it played, but the larger copper economy was, uh, I don't want to say it's the determining factor, but I think is a really important one. And the, the concerns that Kennecott presented early on, which is that, that we need this for the war effort and the balance of payments in the in the nation is so out of out of balance. We've got to do this. As the evidence un, is uncovered during the campaigns, those things don't actually appear to be true, and it doesn't seem like the the small amount of copper that would come from this was going to be worth it. Well, Adam, you've written a really incredible book, uh, An Open Pit Visible from the Moon. The Wilderness Act and the Fight to Protect Miners Ridge in the Public Interest, just published by University of Oklahoma Press. Um, before we wind up our conversation, can you tell us on what you're going to work on next? Well, I'm still working on public lands. I have a couple of projects in various stages, um, just a synthesis on public lands history, which I think will be useful. Um, and then I'm working on another project. I'm not sure how this one's going to shape up, but I'm trying to understand if we can understand public lands agencies um, by looking at just a select few species that they manage and what we might learn about um, how scientists and managers and the public have all tried to understand these places by looking at species like elk that uh, cross from national parks to national forests and that, that sort of thing. Um, we'll see. I'm still pretty early in that project and trying to suss out what the framework might be and and what I might be able to say about that. Well, that sounds fantastic. Hopefully, we'll hear about it in this program again. Um, thanks for your time today. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on to share your news about your book, and take care. Thank you very much. I was glad to do it. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. <laughs>